The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. You know, in practice, the majority of us, at least from what my experience is, we think it's a class effect and, and we run into issues, like you said, with insurance coverage. Some insurance companies do cover Canagua flows in. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibitors for Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction, What Hospitalists Need to Know. Joining us on the podcast is the author of this article, Dr. Sarah Aidey. Dr. Aidey is a PharmD at the University of Michigan where she specializes in cardiology. She's an adjunct clinical assistant professor We hope that you are more familiar with starting SGLT2 inhibitors in all heart failure patients after listening uh, to this podcast. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Your piece on how hospitalists should learn about starting SGLT2s is not just relevant to hospitalists, but it's also relevant to outpatient physicians and subspecialists. Before we get into the actual details of how to start the SGLT2s, let's just talk about why you wrote this piece and what HEFPEF is and what the studies are that say that HEFPEF is now helped by SGLT2s and how now we're talking about HEFMREF. And if I've just confused the audience, HEFPEF <laughs> is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and HEFMREF is heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction. And maybe you can get all that clarified for the audience and why this piece is so important. Thanks so much for having me. And and I think, you know, you hit on a great point that all these different definitions are super confusing. And I feel like um, it just adds to the difficulty of starting these um, agents in patients. One of the, the newer definitions you mentioned is this heart failure with mildly reduced EF. And Um, It was this category, kind of in-between category before, between reduced EF and preserved EF heart failure. So the 2022 um, HAACC, HFSA guidelines came out with this newer definition and kind of talked about these patients in that mildly reduced category as being in kind of a dynamic spot where either we can get to recovery of EF or they may deteriorate and then go into heart failure with dejection fraction. So it's kind of those patients in the in-between of 40 to 50 ejection fraction. And we know, you know, they have a very similar phenotype to our heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients. So 
that's why, you know, the guidelines came out with recommendations that we treat them very similar to those with, with HEFREF, thinking that a lot of these agents would have similar benefits for these patients. And we kind of wrote this piece to talk um, about those newer studies, thinking, you know, a lot of people can not only um, benefit from knowing the different definitions, but also who we can, can start these agents in. So going into the studies, one of the studies that we mentioned within our piece was the DELIVER trial. So this looked at dipagliflozin 10 milligrams daily, and patients were randomized um, in a one-to-one fashion to either dipagliflozin or placebo. And they could notably, and this will come into what I talk about a little bit in, in terms of initiation, but patients could be enrolled either as outpatients or during their hospitalization for heart failure. So something that I'll bring up again um, later on in the podcast. The median duration of follow-up was about 2.3 years, and patients were, were included if they were 40 years of age or older, if they had the evidence of structural heart disease with an EF over 40% and elevated BNP. If we look at this study, the, the mean uh, ejection fraction was 54%. And similar to the other half-ref studies looking at SGLT2s, about 45% had type 2 diabetes. The primary outcome looked at cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure. Um, and it was about 16.4% in dipagliflozin versus 19.5% in placebo. And that was with statistical significance. Of note, if we we always look at the, the composite outcomes, right? And But if we look at the actual pieces of the composite, it was mainly driven by a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations or urgent visit for heart failure. So that was 11.8% in dipagliflozin versus 14.5% in placebo. Of note, there was no significant difference in cardiovascular death. Um, it was 7.4% for, for dipagliflozin, 8.3% for placebo. Notably, though, you know, though we know it's mainly driven in that benefit by heart failure hospitalizations, there was no difference in adverse events specifically leading to discontinuation. There is no difference in any hypoglycemic event. So, you know, taking away from this trial, we see that there's benefit in these patients with preserved ejection fraction or EF over 40% and relatively safe in comparison to placebo. The next trial was the Emperor Preserve trial. So this randomized patients to either um, empagliflozin 10 milligrams daily or placebo. The the median duration of follow-up was 26.2 months and patients 18 years of age or older were included if again, they had the EF over 40% and then NYJ functional class two through four and heart failure hospitalization within 12 months. They also needed to have an elevated N-terminal pro-BMP of over 300 if they didn't have AFib, or over 900 with AFib, and then any structural heart disease within six months, or documented heart failure hospitalization within 12 months. Similar to uh, the delivered study, the mean left ventricular ejection fraction was about 54%, And again, 49% had type 2 diabetes. The primary outcome of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization for empagliflozin versus placebo was 13.8% and 17.1% in placebo. Again, if we're looking at these studies, it's mainly driven by a reduction in heart failure hospitalization. 
Other things that we we take away though from the studies is, you know, in and the Emperor Preserve trial, the rate of decline in EGFR was slower in empagliflozin versus placebo. So we know this is super important um, for our patients. Again, relatively safe. Um, in Emperor Preserved, there was a greater instance of uncomplicated genital um, and urinary tract infections, as well as hypotension in patients with empagliflozin versus placebo. Other things though we take from the studies is not only may it reduce heart failure hospitalizations, um, there's also an improvement in Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire versus placebo. So um, health-related quality of life improvement, which we know is really important for these patients, especially in um, our heart failure patients with preserved EF, knowing we don't have therapies that really reduce mortality. Um, so something to think about. Another point we always, we look at um, with the SGLT2s is when they look at um, kind of the pooled analyses of these studies, they also find a reduction in hyperkalemia um, or initiation of potassium binders. So something we often think about in practice is that we might be able to get them on other things like Entrusto or our aldosterone antagonist. Um, so a few other points besides the, the primary outcomes. So that's really great. But it raises a couple of very interesting questions, and it's relevant because it's such a big impact on cost. The pagliflozin yeah. and pagliflozin are quite expensive. If I remember right, the last time I checked Goodreads Rx, it's somewhere in the $600, $700 a month. Exactly. Patients. Canagliflozin just came out at about $250 per month. Yep. It doesn't have any of these studies. So is, exactly. do we think this is a class effect? Or do we think there's something special about DAPA and EMPA? I think, you know, in practice, the majority of us, at least from what my experience is, we think it's a class effect. And, and we run into issues, like you said, with insurance coverage. But some insurance companies do cover canagliflozin for a, a cheaper um, cost for patients. So if DAPA or EMPA aren't covered, we will use canagliflozin for them. I'm I'm fortunate that the VA has a good deal with empagliflozin, so I can start empagliflozin. Um, yes. The other thing that I was I was trying to do some numbers in my head, the number needed to treat to decrease one hospitalization seemed to be ar around 25 or something yeah. like that. Is that right? Yep. Yep. You're right. So we're going to put a lot of people on these drugs, and somebody's going to get a benefit. We're not even going to know who it is that got a benefit. Um, That's true. Uh, and it doesn't seem to uh, change mortality. The last thing is I was looking at the studies and trying to figure out whether the 40 to 50% people had a bigger impact than the 50 to 60 or the 60 and above. And it seemed like the two studies were opposite. It is um, strange. And in, in that one study showed, you know, the attenuation, the benefit with the LVF over 60. Um, and yet we don't see it in both studies. So I, I don't know what to make of that. Um, you know, perhaps some differences in the patient population, but like I think you mentioned, we often think of, you know, those patients in that 40 to 50 range as having a phenotype of heart failure that's more so similar to half ref, where they probably will get that that greater benefit. So, you know, in our half PEF patients, we do see them come into the hospital quite often and we know um you know, if we do have a therapy that's relatively safe and can reduce heart failure, readmissions, and perhaps quality of life, it, it probably is important for them as well. I, ju I just realized what I didn't look at 
In my experience with heart failure patients, there are two problems. One is diuretic resistance, and the other is diuretic overuse. Yeah. Um, and I didn't notice whether, since the SGLT2s are diuretics, was there any increase in admissions for volume contraction? Or did they there actually was, talk about that? They, yeah, they looked at volume depletion, and there was um, no difference in uh, volume depletion. We don't have a lot of um, literature looking at the effect on diuretics. There was an analysis from DAPA-HF study. That was the study looking at um, dipagliflozin in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And they looked at patients' diuretic dose. So of note in the DAPA-HF study, um, upon initiation, diuretic doses were not changed. But when they looked at this analysis, they found that there was more frequent diuretic dose reductions with dipagliflozin versus placebo, both at six months and at 12 months. And fewer patients in the dipagliflozin group um, had an increase in diuretic dosing at both six months and 12 months compared to placebo. So you you do bring up a good point in, in that oftentimes we run into issues with, you know, all heart failure patients with the diuretic breaking effect and continuing to have to increase diuretic doses over time. So if there is a potential benefit where we don't have to increase those doses, knowing that the, the potential um, diuretic effect of SGL2s, um, it may be beneficial for these patients. So I guess the first point for that that I teach all the time and that I now think is obvious but may not be obvious to, to all the listeners is that SGLT2s are double diuretics. They're osmotic diuretics as well as sodium uh, diuretics. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Interestingly, you know, like you said, I feel like many people don't think about them. If you look at the the European guidelines, even from years ago, they had put SGLT2s to use as, you know, a kind of last line adjunct diuretic um, in our patients with diuretic resistance. So it is something I feel like, you know, many people aren't aware of and, and still an area where there's still confusion about what to do with patients' loop, loop diuretics then. It's, you know, Again, the the trials did not empirically reduce the, the patient's loop diuretic. Um, so we don't really have a lot of a lot to go on um, as to what we should do with these agents. We've now decided to start an SGLT2. And let's expand this to also the group that that already is part of the guidelines, which is reduced ejection fraction. Yep. Uh, the uh, resident comes to you and say, you know, I just haven't started SGLT2s before. What should I do? How do I start it? When do I start it? Yeah. So one of the interesting points is, I don't know if you saw the, the recent ACC consensus statement that came out for, for half-puff patients, but they recommend inpatient initiation for patients with half-puff. So, you know, in my practice, we find a lot of, like, clinical inertia outpatients. So we do try to get things started during admission once patients are stabilized, um, especially knowing the literature with, you know, HEFRAF shows that there's benefit to these initiation during admission to get them on GDMT. Additionally, from these studies, we see a really early benefit upon initiation. So a benefit even within 30 days. So if someone comes in, like you said, they're, they're new heart failure, we try to get them started during admission. Usually we start them once patients are more euvolemic, so perhaps on an oral diuretic, 
knowing that when you initiate SGLT2, similar to initiation of RAS inhibition, you can see a slight bump in EGFR um, with that difference in intraglomerular pressure. So once they're stabilized, we usually start it. And then, you know, they're, they're relatively simple to, to use. Oftentimes, we don't see the issues with blood pressure that we do with our other agents, such as beta blockers and, and RAS mm -hmm. inhibition. So usually we say a, a follow-up BMP within a week or so. Though, again, noting that you're going to have that initial increase in serum creatinine. So we shouldn't stop these agents just because we see that initial bump. And, and what about dosing? I, I've, I've heard that the low dose is just as good as the high dose for heart failure. Yeah. I mean, we only have the literature really with the 10 milligram dosing. So I, I generally recommend using that unless someone has concomitant diabetes and, and we're trying to get better A1C control. And we had started at the 10 and want to go up to 25 for empagliflozin. Luckily for the empagliflozin, you're already at the higher diabetes dosing of 10 milligrams daily. But again, I, I don't think we have kind of that literature to say there's a difference in mortality or heart failure hospitalizations in the higher EFs based on dose. And then I think, you know, there's also not a lot of knowledge about the, the EGFR we can use them in. So um, it's lower than what's FDA approved for, for diabetes. So for dipagliflozin, we can even use with EGFR down to 25 and, and empagliflozin EGFR of 20. Uh, which is another point I feel like um, comes up quite a bit. The other thing that, uh, and whether this is relevant to your practice or not, at the VA, we often take the 25 milligram pagliflozin and cut it, cut it in yeah. two to get the cost down dramatically. I mean, you yeah. go from 600 to $300 a month, still a lot of money, yeah. but uh, it, it, it does work. I, I, at least it yeah. has worked with and our I feel patients. like that's a good option. I mean, if patients could get on even half the dose, we know it's probably better than, than nothing. Um, yeah. and, and knowing we don't have that literature to say when the doses is better, if there's issues with cost, I think that's a great idea. So you already addressed the uh, diabetes. I usually worry about the diuretic dose when I start an SGLT2. And I really like starting the SGLT2s fairly early on because since they work proximally, and there's that one study that suggests that acetazolamide might really help people have acute yeah. heart failure. Maybe SGLT2s are doing something similar to what acetazolamide is doing. Yes. Um, so I, I, I err on the side of starting earlier than later, but I, but I usually think very carefully about the um, loop diuretic dose, but I always think about that when I'm switching from IV to oral. Right. Because yeah. I've seen so many mistakes of people continuing a very high dose or frequency of diuretics when the patient leaves and is already yes. uh, at at what my colleagues call optovolemia. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. I like it. Yeah, the, the cardiologists uh, at UAB taught me that phrase. Because I'm it's not exactly euvolemia, but it's, you know, we're trying to optimize where we should be. Yes. Uh, so when that when people get discharged on too much diuretic, that's when they come in volume contract, and that gets very confusing. So I, yes. I try to be careful about that, but also try to advise the patient that if they're starting to uh, lose weight uh, and feel dizzy, that we need to make an adjustment in some way. 
Yeah. And that's a good point, especially, you know, usually when they come in in acute to compensate heart failure, we know that their threshold dose, um, the, the curve has shifted, right? So we're probably going to require higher mm-hmm. doses up front, but you're exactly right. I see the same thing where people just think, oh, I need to do the exact equivalent then, even when we get them to a more euvolemic state. So it is a good point. I feel like, you know, it makes the case for inpatient initiation of these agents knowing we can make changes to diuretics then if needed. Yeah. So what we do, and I, I bet you do this too, if we send someone home on a new SGLT2, and that's often either the last day of the hospitalization or the next to the last day, yeah. because we're starting it late after they after they're no longer uh, volume overloaded. Yeah. Uh, we tell them to weigh themselves at home and if necessary, adjust the loop diuretic, don't adjust the SGLT2s. And I think trying to get that kind of education to patients that the reason we're giving you that loop diuretic is so that you won't come back in with pulmonary edema and peripheral edema, but otherwise we don't want to use it too much. Exactly. And I feel like it's, it's, it's something that's hard since some of our patients, you know, aren't as reliable in in taking their weights and making those adjustments. So I I get that it can be a bit scary kind of sending them out after just initiating this. We haven't had too many, we've we've looked at our own institution, we haven't had too many where we've needed to change the diuretic dose, you know, upfront, which is, which is reassuring, but it is something definitely to watch out for. And I think that for the outpatient docs who are listening to this podcast, when they get started in the hospital, that's, one one of the reasons that you want to see heart failure patients within a week after discharge yes. is to see how they're doing with that combination of SGLT2 and a loop diuretic. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And not be scared of if you do see a little serum creatinine bump. Right. And that's that's sort of and what's interesting about that bump is there's an initial bump, but long term it actually makes the slope uh flatter so that you're not yes. progressing as as greatly. Um, exactly. Really, I was. I'd like to reemphasize something that you brought up that I think is really important. That you can use it down to an estimated GFR, at least with impactful flows, and down to twenty. And let me just add this one thing: if you're not sure about the estimated GFR, you think the patient might not have the right muscle, consider uh, actually using cystatin C. Also, we started doing that at our institution. If we think someone's uh, muscle mass might be decreased in some way, you know, let's say you have a patient with diabetes who's had a, an amputation, uh, you're oh, going to yeah. get an inaccurate uh, estimated GFR from their uh, creatinine-based estimated GFR. And at least at our institution now, we get back cystatin C's within two or three hours. Yeah, um, we do too. And sometimes I've I've seen dramatic differences in between what is being estimated, you know, with it based on your labs and the cystatin C. Yeah. So that is a good point. So let's just finish up with the process that you go through. I, I I've come into the hospital, I've heart failure, my ejection fraction's 42%. Uh they've stabilized me. And uh now I'm out of the intensive care unit. I'm, we're getting ready to go home. You're you're my farm D. And uh, I say, I, I really want to start uh, impagal flows and I don't know how to do it. What should I do? So usually at our institution, at least we, we check costs to make sure um, it's not an issue, um, especially as you alluded to, these can be really expensive. So if it's covered, we're able to start it usually close to um, discharge to so just 10 milligrams daily. 
and then follow up BMP, as you mentioned, within a week or so. And then counseling for patients just to make sure um, signs of volume depletion and adjustment of loop diuretics if needed. Otherwise, they're relatively easy. Yeah. And is there any reason <laughs> to stop the SGLT2? So like we get all excited about stopping beta blockers sometimes, stopping the either uh, the ARBs or the sacubutrol uh, valsartan. During emission, are you saying to stop it? Uh, well, so both for the outpatient docs and the inpatient doc. When do you, yeah, uh, so is there any, any, any situation in which you're going to stop this GLT2? So inpatient, we do hold it um, if they're having a procedure, just because um, the, there's guidance to say hold it for three days if there's um, a major procedure for the risk-free glycemic DKA. Mm -hmm. So just something to be considering about you. You should run into that issue if they don't have diabetes, but it, there is the warning um, within the package labeling. Um, so that would be a consideration inpatient, or if we think someone inpatient may be volume depleted, they're in AKI, we may want to hold these agents and similar outpatient. If we send them out, we notice a serum creatinine bump much above what's expected um, or their volume depletion. It may be advisable to hold until we can kind of get their volume status under control or adjust other things like their loop diuretic. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and having this conversation about the use of SGLTs, which both in all types of heart failure uh, no matter what uh, letters they use, uh, seems to be very valuable. And you, you've made it much more clear for me and hopefully for the audience. Good. Thanks so much for having me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This discussion was based upon the fact that hospitalizations are decreased with the start of SGLT2s in either patients with HEFMREF or HEFPEF or more simply, anyone who has heart failure and ejection fraction of greater than 40. We already knew that this was true for patients with ejection fractions less than 40. It's likely that this is due to the diuretic nature of SGLT2s, and therefore we must be concerned about the possibility of increasing our diuresis because SGLT2s work in the proximal tubule loop diuretics work and the loop of Henle, and so therefore we're delivering more sodium to the loop and might have enhanced diuresis. It is important to remember that our goal is optovolemia, that is, we want the patient to neither be volume overloaded nor volume contracted. We may have to adjust diuretic dosing after we start SGLT2s. For outpatient physicians, it's very important that if they're started in the hospital, that you are able to see the patient within one week after discharge to check on volume status, to check on estimated GFR, and make certain that the patient uh, is comfortable with these medications. Finally, we must point out that there is no known mortality impact uh, of these patients, but there's definitely a quality of life impact that's very positive. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.